Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the AllInGospel.com website. So we're in 2 Kings chapter 11 tonight, and we dig in. This is God's history, and we get to see how God worked through history when we do this. Verse 1, when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal heirs. But Jehosheba, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being murdered. And they hid him and his nurse in the bedroom from Athaliah and that, so that she, he was not killed. So he was hidden with her in the house of the Lord for six years while Athaliah reigned over the land. So we get this massive soap opera happening down in Judah. Chapter 9, we saw that Jehu killed um, uh, the king of the southern kingdom who had been buddying up to... Um, the descendants of Ahab. So in order to get so that there was no claim to the throne in the northern kingdom, he killed Athaliah's son, and there were ripple effects from that. So now both nations have queens ruling over them, queens that are both um, Baal worshippers and uh, descendants of Jezebel. And they show an active um, desire for power and a misuse of that power. Uh, there are people that kind of turn this into a gender thing. I think you seem to have, you just simply have two people that are led towards evil. It's not necessarily a commentary on women. It is a commentary on evil rulers ruling over lands. And in this case, Je Jezebel's legacy is still going. And there's a corrupting influence on both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom uh, that we get to see at this point in the history. So, She's, she sees that all of the descendants of Ahab are getting killed, and her response is to start killing all the descendants of Jehoshaphat. And now this is a different thing because God promised a Messiah through Judah and the line of Judah. So if she's successful in doing this, that would eliminate the prophetic possibility or the completion of certain prophecies that say that the Messiah will come from Judah and the line of David. So her effort is to wipe out the line of David. This is cold, it's power hungry, it's ruthless, and she's practicing the dark arts of Baal worship as she does this. And as we've seen, there's been a few times in history where the enemy works through people to try to eliminate the possibility of God's promises coming true. This is one of them. Verse 2 says, but Jehoshaphat, this is kind of the only mention of this other woman who has her own plans. And she's the aunt of the last of Joash, this kid, who's the descendant of David and the last one. This is like great movie novel writing material, right? She squirrels this guy away at the temple. She hides him. Initially, she hides him in her bedroom, and then she brings him down to the house of the Lord, the temple, um, to keep him. And the way this is presented by the writer is this is God's hand in history, that her mercy for this child to keep him alive is how God keeps alive the line of David. And this is being written again and probably compiled as a book when they're in Babylon, when they've seen the results of all of the sin. And they're piecing together like what happened and when did we get warnings and how did God interact in history to make this happen? And this is one of those stories. So we're likely, when we see the enemy attacking, we also see God at work preserving and we've seen that a number of times now. So like Samuel, she gets this kid grows up at the temple. He learns the law of God from the age of a child. And he's growing up in the shadow of this Jezebel line that, that, that's there. So the darker things get, the more heroic people get. And, and really, Jehoshaphat, there's not a lot about her, but she's a hero. She is independently comes in and is used by God to save the line of David, and the possibility of Messiah coming the way the Lord said the, that it would come. So God raises up people, and there we go. So we have Joash as a singular place now as the heir of David. The Messiah has to come out of Joash from this point forward. So you could even say the line of Joash, but we don't say that because of the rest of the chapter. We still say the throne of David. In the seventh year, Jehoiada sent 
and brought the captains of hundreds of the bodyguards and escorts and brought them into the house of the Lord to him. And he made a covenant with them and took an oath from them in the house of the Lord and showed them the king's sons. This is like bringing them in the door saying, I have a secret to tell you, but you have to take an oath that you won't tell anybody. And they're doing it in the house of the Lord, which I'm sure had some gravitas to this binding oath. So you got to promise you won't tell anybody if I tell you what I'm about to do you. So he does this, brings them in, Jehoiada being one of the generals. We get limited information about him. He's just this person. I'm sorry, not one of the generals, but Jehoiada is one of the t- top priests, and he brings in the gem- generals to the temple. And so this is likely the guy that kind of raised Joash. And a lot like Samuel was raised in the temple, this guy's raised Joash too. He, he becomes an um, advisor to Joash when he takes the kingship. But he makes them take an oath. Um, and they're doing this in the temple. So we see it, that these generals are still true to Yahweh. Not everyone in the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom has largely followed God's law for generations. So this introduction of Baal worship, they're responding to it a little quicker than the northern kingdom did. Um, but they're going to still fall away and go to Babylon. The immediate readiness of these generals makes it look like the people were pretty sick of Athaliah and her leadership and sick of just the persecution of the temple. So, when we get to that, we'll, we'll read a little bit here. Then he commanded them, saying, This is what you shall do. A third of you who come on the duty on the Sabbath shall be keeping watch over the king's house. One third shall be at the gate of Sir, and one third at the gate behind the escorts. So you shall keep watch on the house, house lest it be broken down. Then the two contingents of you who go off duty on the Sabbath shall keep the watch of the house of the Lord for the king. So you're not going to leave duty. You're going to stay and protect the house of the Lord. You're going to stay by the temple and not go off duty when you're done. But you shall surround the king on all sides, every man with his weapons in his hand, and whoever comes within range, let him be put to death. You are to be with the king as he goes out and as he comes in. Now, when they're referring to the king here, they're talking about Joash, this kid. Um, so the captains of the hundreds did according to all that Jehoiada, the priest, commanded. Each of them took his men who were to be on duty on the Sabbath with those who were going off duty on the Sabbath, and they came to Jehoiada, the priest. And the priest gave the captains of hundreds the spears and shields which had belonged to King David that were in the temple of the Lord. This is appropriate. David made these weapons for the temple, and they're getting used to put his um, descendant back on the throne. So there's a certain kind of symmetry to this whole thing. Then the escort stood, every man with his weapon in his hand, all around the king, from the right side of the temple to the left side of the temple, by the altar and the house. And he brought out the king's son and put the crown on him and gave him the testimony that they made him king and anointed him. And they clapped their hands and said, long live the king. I like that because I think of it being two claps, you know, long live the king. So probably more enthusiastic than that. Um, When it says he gave him the testimony, uh, this is kind of a, a... we're seeing a side of the, when we go back to Judah and we're in the southern kingdom, we're seeing a side or a nation that has served the Lord much more faithfully than the northern kingdom. So Joash is revealed to everyone. They've all taken their oath. They see that they have an option to the evil leadership. So we get all the way to chapter 11 before we see these battles pop up, popping up in Judah. And by the time we hit here, the escorts stand, every man with his weapon in his hand. There's a universal, like, we're sick of this kind of poor, corrupt, not God-fearing leaders, and they're going to put somebody else on the throne. When he puts the crown on him, it clarifies that Joash is the king. This is like a seven-year-old kid at this point. Gave him the testimony as per the law. Back in Deuteronomy 17, 18, it said, And it shall be when he sitteth upon, sitteth, I took King James, when he sits upon the throne of the kingdom, that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book out of that which is before the priests and the Levites. So I wonder at some point if he gave him the testimony, if Joash by age seven had actually written out the law, possible. You know, you could start them when they're five and, you know, the priest Jehoiada would have had all day, every day. And that would have been the kid's education as you're going to write out the five first five books of the what we call the Old Testament. Um, And it's interesting that he does this in front of everyone. So to accept and receive their king, they use oil to anoint them and then they declare it verbally saying, long live the king. They give their oath to this person and not Queen Athaliah. It's interesting here, and I think this is kind of a neat image, 
when God's king takes the throne, the people put him on the throne. Joash never fights for the kingship. He doesn't destroy anyone to take it. He's just raised up, anointed, and accepts it. And I think it's interesting because leadership in God's kingdom always has free will when it comes to following ship, right? Leaders are made because people like to follow and leaders are made and you follow people that you respect and you regard and that have a, that are actually doing and following a moral code. And I think this is God's model and it's ideal for God's model. It's how we operate in the church. We accept leaders and we accept our King. It's also true of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ never strong armed any of you into following him. That's not how God works. Yet here's this king who's been shown, anointed, and revealed to humanity that we have the choice and the option to accept and follow that king if we so choose. Same model. And so we see Joash taking the throne the right way. Jesus is also an heir of David's throne, a rightful heir to the throne. Uh, there's a false king, you know, called Satan out there that claims dominion over this world. And Jesus has come in and taken it. He's been revealed, seen, he's given his word, he's anointed, he's accepted, and we follow him in peace. And that's just how kings operate in God's kingdom. Then you get to the death of Athaliah. Verse 13. Now, when Athaliah heard the noise of the escorts and the people, she came to the people in the temple of the Lord. So she kind of has the audacity to crash this anointing ceremony and storm in, right? And when she looked, there was the king standing by a pillar according to custom. So literally the middle of the anointing ceremony. And the leaders and the trumpeters were by the king. And all the people of the land were rejoicing and blowing trumpets. Like this, again, she comes in at the, the height of the moment of long live the king and... So Athaliah tore her clothes and cried out, treason, treason. She interrupts. She brings a lot of bad juju when she does this. Um, I think that treason, treason would be technically it means she's upset. She doesn't like this situation. So it's actually um, true is that she is the existing reigning monarch. So this whole thing going on at the temple, it actually is treason from a world's perspective. From God's perspective, he's, he's writing the situation. So there are seasons where an evil rule has to be deposed and put away. And God's people actually say we're done with this leadership, and they take up and raise up their own leadership. And we have a biblical example of that happening. In fact, that's, there's a spiritual example of that too, in that Satan claims dominion over people's lives, and godly people say, no, I'm going to accept Jesus' dominion over my life, and I'm going to put off the bad king, and I'm put on the good king. So, especially when the enemy's trying to exterminate a spiritual life in somebody's walk. Then we get to verse 15. And Jehoiada the priest commanded the captains of the hundreds and officers of the army and said to them, take her outside under guard and slay with the sword whoever who follows her. For the priest had said, do not let her be killed in the house of the Lord. So they seized her and went by the way of the horse's entrance into the king's house. And there she was killed. She's the only one killed. Apparently nobody followed her. Right? So that makes sense if you hear that order. Um... Some people struggle again with this. The fact that she took this rulership as a murderer of the heirs of David and thought she had killed everyone and took the throne because there was no one else to challenge it, this would be an execution. She's being killed because she murdered people. And, the, and according to the law, when you murder someone, a right and just consequence for that is to be killed. You could even argue that, that she killed multiple people, but she can only be killed once. But still, that's the consequence for murder. So that Jehoiada orders it to happen, has other human beings that carry it out. Uh, they take it outside the city so it's not just done in the God's house. I think the idea is we don't kill people in the temple of God. And it's not drawn out. There's no long, lengthy courtroom drama. It's, she's taken out back and it's ended. Verse 17, then Jehoiada, Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord, the king, and the people that they should be the Lord's people. And also between the king and the people. This is an interesting, it's a recommitment. And I think sometimes with believers, they'll get, they'll fall into sin or they'll backslide like Judah did. Then they'll think, oh, God doesn't love me. I screwed up. I made a covenant. I broke it. There's such a thing in the walk of faith called recommitment, where you rededicate your life to the Lord after a season of falling away. So this is done with David when he falls. It's done with Solomon. This idea of renewing a covenant between the people of God and God according to the deal that God made. 
Joash's existence and salvation shows that God has kept his side of the covenant. He's retained one person for the line of David, and that's all that's needed. So God has intervened to protect Joash, keeping his side, and the response by Jehoiada is to do it, to rededicate it. Between the Lord, the king, and the people, that's a special covenant. The king is supposed to serve the people. The people are supposed to honor and respect the king's rule, and the Lord is supposed to, to look over both, both of them so that they should be the Lord's people. The purpose of this is that the Lord can work through the nation and he can speak through his prophets and a king can listen to those prophets and bless the people in doing so. But no one's in charge in this relationship except for God. And then that little tag on at the end of 17 and also between the king and the people. I think this is an interesting biblical example of leadership and what civics looks like in God's kingdom. There's a line here that that, I, there, that there's this idea that there's a social contract between the king and the people. There's whole books on this written in the mid-1700s. In fact, this verse, verse 17, is one that the founding fathers of America leaned on. And this was the thing. If God's put a king in place and he's the architect of all of human history, then how dare anyone not obey the king? So this was a major debate for our founding fathers, right? When they're talking about what do we do when we have an evil king that's broken his side of the covenant, are we obligated to stay in that covenant? And so they use this line that there is also between the king and the people. The king has a responsibility to the people and the people have a responsibility to the king. And if for homework you want to go and read the Declaration of Independence again, you'll see the influence of this verse on, on that argument that there has been a contract between a king and the people and the king has broken it again and again and again and again. But the king has a responsibility to the people and when the king abdicates that responsibility, a people must raise up their own king. And they called it a president. They didn't want to go with the word king. But they, the people have an obligation to hold that king accountable to their covenant also. It goes two ways. Um, so a ruler and the people with mutual obligation, mutual regard for each other, mutual respect. Verse 18, and all the people of the land went to the temple of Baal and they tore it down. I like Judah at this phase in their history. This is the right thing to do. How was it built up? It was built up by Athaliah as she's tried to promote this new religion. They thoroughly broke it in pieces, its altars, its and images, and killed Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars. This is the similar to the cleaning out of Baal worship under Jehu. We're going to go down there. We're going to take the thing down. The difference is that the people do this, not Jehu, not the king. Joash is seven. He's not old enough to do this. But the people say, we're not going to have this in our country. We're not going to deal with this in our community. So there's a groundswell of revival in this situation. The rest of verse 18, and the priest appointed officers over the house of the Lord. Then he took the captains of hundreds, the bodyguards, the escorts, and all the people of the land, and they brought the king down from the house of the Lord and went by way of the gate of the escorts to the king's house. Then he sat on the throne of the king's. So all of the people of the land rejoiced. It's like an old fairy tale. And then all the people rejoiced. All was good with the land. And the city was quiet, for they had slain Athaliah with the sword in the king's house. Jeho uh, Jehoash was seven years old when he became king. And the city was quiet. I find this is interesting. The ideal for God's kingdom, if everything's going great, the, the perfect situation is everything was quiet. Like, that's the definition it's not everybody had a party, every, but it's just everything was quiet. The problem with Athaliah was it was constant drama, constant division, constant issues, constant news cycles, just again, like, like waves on a shore, just constantly hitting the people. This, now this, now they're building the temple of Baal, now they're doing this, now they're disrespecting God here. There's just chaos. And when God's people are on the throne, when God's will is done, there's quiet. There's peace in the land. And that's the reward. And sometimes as humans, we don't respect how wonderful peace is until we lose it and we don't have it anymore. So I think this is interesting with God's elect that the ideal is peace. When a family realigns to God's plan, I think this applies all the way to the family level. When people are doing what God has called them to do, when they go home at the end of the day, there's peace in the home. 
And when you have members of the family that aren't doing what God's called them to do, it creates friction in the home. And so as a family rooting those things out, in a relationship rooting those things out, destroying false idols, taking down false temples, those are things that the, the, the end result of doing those kinds of things in our life spiritually is that there's peace in the home. And that's always a good thing. The family was quiet as they did these things. So Jehoash was seven years old when he became king. Clearly, this isn't Joash's leadership, right? It's, he's seven. This is the people, this is this priest of the temple that's kind of fighting back against a, a, a queen that wants to follow Baal. The name changes here in verse 21. Don't be confused by that. Um, Joash means given by the Lord. Jehoash is like saying Jimmy and Jim. It's the same name. One's just longer than the other. Um, in this case, it goes the opposite direction. It starts with the shorter name given by the Lord, and then it goes Jehoash, which means whom Jehovah gave. It just changes it a little bit. And that givenness, I think, is important in this story because when we see the longer name in verse 22, that's in the past tense. So Jehoash starts out really, really well. And in the past tense is how you refer to what God gave them, this king. He saved this singular heir to the throne. Um, but as he gets older, he kind of falls away from what God called him to. Um, but God has done this. Likewise with Jesus, he gave us salvation. And we, we see that Yahweh is salvation, Jesus. So in this case, he gave them a king. He kept that promise alive. Chapter 12. In the seventh year of Jehu, Jehoash or Joash became king and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. That's a pretty long reign. His mother's name was Zibiah of Beersheba. This is important because we've seen queen mothers in Israel and in, in Judah now. Clearly, the ancient Jews had no problem with the queen being on the throne. They had a problem with Athaliah and Jezebel because they were evil, nasty, corrupt people. But in this case, when we see the end of verse 1, Zibiah of Beersheba is simply that his mom has a lot of influence on him as he's seven years old. So there's adults in his life, Jehoiada from the, from the temple, and then Zibiah, his mom, from the family. Uh, Joash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days in which Jehoiada the priest instructed him. While he had advisors that were godly, he did really well as a king. When Jehoiada probably passes away of old age, then there's problems that start to emerge. But the high places were not taken away. The people sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. We've seen this mention of the high places a few times before. High places were like giant parks on top of the hill where they could have rowdy parties, big old drinking parties. And they had dedicated areas where they could do that. It's interesting because this is the same as Jehu. It's the same problem with Jehu. He eliminated all the Baal worship. But he didn't take care of the stuff that were these kind of remnants of pagan practices that God really didn't appreciate. And so even though they're not worshiping Baal, they're also not following God the way God's told them to do. They're not following God's instruction for their life. It's almost like God wants Baal gone, but he lets them still, con like, so he, in he in inserts himself to get rid of Baal worship from, from Israel. Because that has to go. That's going to continue to attack the line of David, so it's got to be gone. In that sense, though, God's still giving them a lot of free will. He doesn't interject himself to get rid of these high places. He was waiting for humans to do that, and he's looking for humans that actually pursue purity, not just try to get rid of the negative stuff. And there's kind of a, a subtle difference there. It's interesting that kings in verse 3 get measured by this. Like, this is what's important to God. Yeah, they got rid of the the overtly evil anti-God stuff, but they never really purified their lives. They never really sought me in that kind of way. Um, so we see a godly influence from Jehoiada, and then we get this but the high places thing. So even though Joash does all the right things because he doesn't do this, he's not the Messiah. And with each king we're in the book of Kings, we're getting this measure of, but this is where they fell short. And that's because as they're writing this, they're looking for the Messiah. Has the Messiah come yet, right? So somebody has to stand tall and do this, but we have to have people that go all the way with it and actually seek it. One of the notable things about Jesus in the Gospels is that he never sinned. 
He didn't have a but on the end of his story. He did it right all the way. He did take down those who were high and mighty. He knocked down false practices with the Pharisees and the scribes. But he also sought purity, and he lived a life that was pure according to God's law. So from God's perspective, this is the only measure of a king that matters. Forty years of reign, and we only hear about how he got the position, which was to save the line of David. That's where God stepped in. Then that's 40 years of just nothing. So kind of embarrassing. We do have some godly kings coming up, by the way. We got Hezekiah coming up. We got Josiah coming up. Where Joash gets this wonderful Samuel-like start, he does not finish well. And this is a danger. It's what us old guys pray about. Lord, help me finish like I started. I don't want to just take dabble with Christianity. I want to finish strong. Spiritually, we also try to demolish high places. And I think this is consistent with the New Testament. There's nothing, this isn't a dis- different God. 2 Corinthians 10.5, we demolish arguments in every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We fight sometimes. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. The battle for us after the New Testament covenant is spiritual. We take these things in our life, these high places, things that take preference over Jesus, and we tear them down. And we systematically do it throughout our lives so that all that's left is Christ. Because that's all that matters. And everything's added after that. So, chapter 12, verse 2, And Joash said to the priests, All the money of the dedicated gifts that are brought into the house of the Lord, each man's census money, each man's assessment money, and all the money that a man purposes in his heart to bring into the house of the Lord, let the priests take it themselves, each from his constituency, and let them repair the damages of the temple wherever any dilapidation is found. Interesting word. This means the work on the temple, the temple had been left under disrepair under Athaliah. And we're going to see later the kind of work that gets done. There's actually damage that was done to the temple. Athaliah hated this building. And so there's actual damage to it. We don't know what was happening to the money, right? God set up a whole the whole system where people could take care of this temple and pay for the repairs and do it. But over the years, that money was not getting to where it needed to get to. Um, Jehoash said this to the priests. Something's happening that we don't hear about in this chapter, but something's going on with the priesthood where that money's not getting where it needs to go. The accountability's gone. So we're talking about money tonight. There's the census money that gets mentioned in in verse 4. Census money is Exodus 20, verse 13. It's the same for everybody in the country. Poor people, rich people, everybody owes a half a shekel a year. And that half a shekel a year was to maintain the synagogues and the other buildings. And so it was one of those things, it was like a flat tax that everybody paid the same amount. Not a percentage, just a half shekel a person. And then there's the assessment money. This was a different thing. Leviticus 27. Anytime somebody came into the temple and made a vow to God, then they would they could they could do that, but this is on top of their sin offering, grain offering, fellowship offering. This is totally voluntary. So the census money is not voluntary. Everybody pays a half shekel, it's a modest fee. But the assessment money is when is a free will giving to God saying, I'm going to dedicate this money and just give it to him. I'm just going to give him this above and beyond everything else. So something was going on with this money where those two things should have gone in there. And then a third thing, money that a man purposes in his heart. Again, this is a free will offering. I love the Lord. I want to give this gift. I got this windfill. Aunt Bertha died and left me a ton, and I want to give a piece of it to the synagogue to fix up the nasty gutters that are breaking down. That's called a free will offering. It's defined in Leviticus 22. So Exodus 20, Leviticus 27, Leviticus 22. Here's what I like about this. Joash coming into the kingship, probably he grew up in this temple and could see what bad shape it was in. So the first thing he does, like this feels like a seven-year-old. We're going to fix the darn temple. Like, what do you want to do as king? I want to fix the temple. Get this done. Because you could see what was happening to it. And that temple needs to be cared for. And it's a good thing for God's people to take care of the places that they meet and gather. So two-thirds of these are completely free will. They're offerings that are brought in on top. These have nothing to do with the priest's paychecks. They get the, they're paved through different things. And then you see the word dilapidation. Dilapidation happens with a lack of maintenance and care and concern for things. I think the dilapidation here is physical, 
But I think we can also read it as sometimes there's things which have been let go over time. And that's an issue of the heart when we let things go. So he says, let them repair it. So sometimes really simple seven-year-old commands are good godly commands. And this was a good thing to do. What Joash doesn't realize in his innocence is there were politics involved. And politics make the wheels grind slowly. So verse 6. Now, now it was so by the 23rd year of King Joash that the priests had not repaired the damages to the temple. So they were like, you know, thank you for your edict, little seven-year-old. But the, now he's 23 years into this by the 23rd year of King Joash. And I, I think that's his age. So this kid's grown up and he's like, hey, when I was seven, I said to fix the darn temple. Why, you know, why are there still broken windows? Why is there still damage to the masonry? Why has the carbon, why is the wood rotting out and getting moldy? This isn't okay. This is God's temple. So as a king, he's realizing that he doesn't have as much power as he thinks. Clearly, the workers are willing to work for a wage, so, but the money isn't getting into the hands of the workers. And that's important as we see how it's worded here in a few verses. Jo, jo, Joash gave a simple command, and he's realizing that his command's not being listened to. And there's a lot of patience here. Like, it takes time to fix these buildings. But he's being completely ignored. <laughs> By the way... This is breaking their oaths to him. This is a criminal offense that he's realizing something's happening with this money, but these are all people that vowed to serve him as their king. As the people, they're breaking the covenant to their king by doing this. And that's not a good thing. So it's been over two years or over 10 years or so, and there's no blame that's laid. He's just like, why isn't this getting done? So he brings in um, Jehoiada, the, the chief priest, verse 7. So King Joash called in Jehoiada, the priest, and the other priests and said to them, why have you not repaired the damages to the temple? Good question. Let's get an answer to it. Now, therefore, notice we don't get an answer to it. Like they didn't have an answer that's worthy of recording here. We don't know. Oh, we don't, there's just no money for it. This is all like two thirds of it's voluntary stuff. Now, therefore, do not take more money from your constituency. So they're thinking we could just, you know, ring people for more money. I love this because you know how we operate. We operate cheap and out of debt. Do not take more money from your constituency. If a church is short on money, I don't see any precedent in the Bible where we go asking for it or fundraisers or little thermometers on the wall. And those kinds of, that sort of behavior is simply not trusting that God can do what he wants to do when he needs to do it. And this is a great story about God raising his own funds. Here's what does happen. Do not take more money from your constituency, but deliver it for repairing the damages of the temple. I want that money that does get offered to come in and make sure it gets all the way here. And the priests agreed that they would do neither receive more money from the people nor repair the damages of the temple. So to their face, they concede to this? Or am I reading this wrong? The priests agreed that they would neither receive more money from the people nor repair the damages to the temple. So they agreed to not repair the damages to the temple? Like, I don't know if that's a typo or if they're just being political with him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, we won't take more money, but then we can't fix anything. So there, there's kind of this throwing up of hands is how I would read that to, the, to this face they're giving it there. So then, then, the verse 9 starts with then, there's a solution that's came up with. And it doesn't say who came up with this solution. But the then is because they're saying, nor repair the damages of the temple. So they do something kind of unique. And I like this. They put out a love box. It's really simple. Then Jehoiada the priest took a chest, bored a hole in its lid, and called it the first piggy bank. And they put the piggy bank beside the altar. And the altar would be the altar at the main temple. Um, and on the right side, as one comes into the house of the Lord, and the priests who kept the door put there all the money that was brought into the house of the Lord. So it was, whenever they saw that there was much money in the chest, that the king's scribe and the high priest came up and put it in bags. They counted the money that was found in the house of the Lord. And then they gave the money which had been apportioned. Listen to this. This is financial management for a church. This is how it's supposed to work. Super sinful. Don't go out and gather money and pass a plate. Most U.S. churches pass a plate. Where did they get that precedent from? It's not biblical. What they do is they put out a chest 
where everybody can see it. They put it right next to the altar. Now, we hide our love box because I like doing that. I think it's fun. It's like a hide-and-go-seek thing. We get new people that show up, and they're like, hey, we'd like to contribute or something and pay a little because that food was great. We want to throw a little bit in the pot. Well, you got to go find it. It's around somewhere, and I just think that's kind of joyful. It's, you know, it's a scavenger hunt. Go do it. If you want to give something to the ministry, do that. If God's put that on your heart, absolutely do it. But you do it. It's not for somebody else to take care of that business. That's for some, something for you to take care of. And it's a free will offering here. And I think that's important. It strongly implies that the lower priests were hoarding things. Because look at how they handle this really carefully. So they put it, they put it visible, verse 9. And the priests who kept the door put there all the money brought into the house of the Lord. So, you know, money for them would be these big metal pieces and chips, and they would just put it in that little hole. The locked chest meant nobody could get into it. So people couldn't put their hand in the cookie jar and steal from it. And then in verse 10, whenever it was they saw that the chest was getting full, they'd pull the chest out, probably go into a back room, and there's two people counting the money. The king's scribe, the one who keeps the records— Scribes would write it down, and the high priest, the person who's in charge of the ministry. So both those people know what was in there. Neither one of them knows who gave what. So they're not recording who gave how much money and whatnot, but they are just recording the amount, locking in where it is, and whatever corruption was happening out in the districts, this eliminates that corruption because they're all coming into the temple, and they're just going to give directly to the temple. That makes it visible. It makes it accountable, and suddenly people feel like when I give my money to the ministry, I know it's going to the ministry. And that's something that has to happen. So they counted the money in verse 10. They actually took the time to account for it, know where it was, that was found in the house of the Lord. Now, in America, we do things different because we got a government that made tax codes. The government said, if you give money to ministries, well, then you don't want to get taxed on that money. So in America, we not only count it, but we account for it at the end of the year so people can then not pay the government more than we owe them. Because we keep our covenant with our governments, we do that. But that's also not biblical. We're not supposed to know who gave how much. But we do, because we have this system where obviously if you don't owe the government money, you shouldn't pay them more money than they're owed. So we always encourage people to do that. At some point, I will completely step away from it, and all I'll ever know is how much, if we have enough to buy the new coffee machine or not. Because that's all I want to know, right? In this instance, the high priest is there and the scribe is there. The point is they're recording it, they're documenting it. If the king wanted to come in and look at their books, the king could look at their books. And if you think about financial management this way, if your king Jesus came to look at your books, would it be accounted for? Would you be responsible stewards of what God's brought into your house? So you can think of this at a really personal level. So this idea of collecting and how to collect and how to do it, make it visible, make it public, make it hard to steal from. Like, we don't want to make it easy for people to steal. Um, It adds a priority to it by putting it out there. Like, there's nothing wrong with the people in the temple saying, look, the place is falling apart. If you want to help with the leaky roof, there's a box by the altar a collection box, but it depends on God moving people's hearts versus us wringing people's arms. And I just, this is how God works. Second Corinthians 9, 7, let each one give as they purpose in their heart, not grudgingly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. We don't strong arm people. We don't force people. We never do that. So they counted the money. It was formalized, avoided corruptions. And then it says, which had been apportioned. They're forming a budget. And the budget was made by the king. I want the temple fixed. And then they give the money to the place where the king had dictated that would go, which is stewarding money that's not your own. So this is part of why we have a separate account called the All-In Gospel account. It never touches our bank account so that if somebody wanted to look at those books, we can. It's why every year we have a meeting where we show people, here's where we're at. And if you weren't at that meeting, it was kind of a cool year because we we have 16 more dollars than we started with at the beginning of last year, which means the money's coming in, it's going out to the ministry. And it's just great. We love how that works. We're blessed. We love to see those results. We love to see what God's doing. And it allows everybody to be part of the church. And I kind of like the half shekel thing, right? It doesn't matter if you're rich or whatever. It just allows everybody to be part of the ministry. 
And so that idea of being part of it, you lend not only your spiritual support by praying for a church, but by giving even a token amount, you're involved in whatever ministry gets done. Whatever growth happens, whatever spiritual blessing gets done, whatever sin gets stomped on by a ministry, you're part of that when you do that. Then they gave the money, verse 11. <laughs> then people just started giving. If you know those priests are just ripping you off and lining their pockets, it's hard to give. Let's be realistic. It's hard to give money to a ministry where you don't see the ministry. So you got these local priests just kind of getting, becoming more wealthy than the people they live with. Something's broken in that system. So then they gave the money, which had been apportioned, into the hands of those who did the work who had the oversight of the house of the Lord, and they paid it out. So I just, before we keep going to the 11, when people are working for the ministry and you don't have time to work with the ministry because God's called you into other things, giving that money or those free will offerings or those ties, that is part of how you can be part of the ministry is now that ministry group can pay for people to do the work. And that is the apportionment of it. There are human beings have to fix things. Human beings have to do the counseling. Human beings have to get those things ready so that the ministry can go forward every week. So that the idea of the worker getting paid is something that Paul talked to Timothy about. I'll read that in a little bit. But that idea of this is part of what we do with that money, is we pay it to the people that do the work. So they paid the carpenters, verse 11, the builders who worked on the house of the Lord, 12, to masons and stonecutters. Okay, how much damage was done to this place? This temple is only about 100 years old, right, at this time? Paul can double-check me on that. It's only about 100 years old. Stone cutters? Like stone had been damaged? Stone lasts a long time. There's still a Parthenon standing in Greece, right? So to only to be breaking down or crumbling, this is heavy-duty stone in this area, and they're buying timber and hewn stone to repair the damage of the house of the Lord. So we don't get the story of what happened, but it's very clear in this generation that damage had been done to the temple, you know? So I don't know if that's vandalism, if Athaliah actively tried to chip away at it or, or carve things out of it or knock off the little pomegranates that have been carved in. We don't know what it is, but we know that masons were hired to fix it. And all that was paid out to repair the temple. The money came in and it went exactly to what the king said to put it in towards. God has no problem with paying fair pay for work. No problem with paying lumber, like carpenters and lumberjacks and stone workers that is what it is. I think sometimes in the larger church, we see the church ripping people off. And that always bothers me. He paid the carpenters for carpenters' work at whatever the going wage or rate was for that. And we see sometimes I think the church uses their ministry as an excuse to not pay the workers. And so you're looking for deals all the time. Or maybe God's got plenty of money, and as a church, people should love doing contract work for the church because the church pays really well. We're very fair with what we pay. So Jesus tells the disciples, of course, when you're meeting in a basement, you don't have a lot of work to pay for. So we just spend it on food and coffee into the hands of the work, uh, into the hands of those who did the work. And that's noted in this passage as a good thing. Jesus tells the disciples to allow people to provide for them. Remember, he sends them out with nothing and he says, let people take care of you. And part of the ministry is to put yourselves in the hands of God's people. And that's, again, a mutual respect between the people and the folks that God's raised up to do ministry. Let trust that those people will take care of you. Mark 6, Luke 9. Paul tells Timothy as a young minister in the church, and this is one that fed me a lot because when we started this Bible study, we didn't really need money. Like, honestly, it was just one of those things where we didn't have enough people. Like, we could kind of just do stuff. Um, and it was hard for me to ever want to take anything that people gave for anything other than just that food. And it, it, so if for, at least for me, maybe you don't struggle with this, but he goes to Timothy and he says, the elders who direct the affairs of the church are well worthy of double honor, especially those who work, whose work is preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, don't muzzle an ox when it's spreading out the grain. The worker deserves their wages. And I think that's connected back to this passage. Like it's okay to take care of people that do that. Um, all three are dependent on the free will and generosity of others. They're putting their life in their hands. And all three come with a God responsibility that they're accountable to God for what they do with that. If that money doesn't go to the ministry, if it doesn't go to the people who do the work, there's a major problem when you have to answer to God for what happened to his money. 
because it's his to deal with. So the project wasn't delayed for a lack of resources, but poor management of those resources and possibly unethical use of those resources. So he comes in, he fixes this, this is the notable thing of his kingship. Um, and then we get to verse 13. However, there were not made for the house of the Lord basins of silver, trimmers, sprinkling bowls, trumpets, any articles of gold or articles of silver from the money brought into the house of the Lord. So they took in all this money and they spent it on the things that needed to be done. And I think this has something to do with being prudent and good stewards. We don't need flashy things. We need the things to get the work done, to be hosting ourselves and doing things. But we don't have to like have diamond coated carpet or anything like that. You know, sparkling bowls, like no, just porcelain will work fine. Paper plates now and then to save some dishes. Verse 14, but they gave that to the workmen and they repaired the house of the Lord with it. Moreover, they did not require an account from the men whose hand they delivered the money to be paid to the workers, for they dealt faithfully. I think this is really interesting. Sometimes when people hire employees, you don't trust the employees. So you ask for time cards. You ask for things to, they, they kept their end of the contract and you pay them by the minute, right? And they didn't do that with this. The carp, they said to the carpenters, how much to fix that? Carpenters said about this much and they dealt faithfully with each other. And think of the amount of bookwork that they saved. All right, we'll pay you for your work. I'm not worried about how long it takes. I'm just worried that the work gets done and we keep, we're faithful with each other. You tell me what a fair rate is, I'll pay you a fair rate. And you can actually do an economy like that if people aren't trying to rip each other off. Because again, you're accountable to God for how you take care of each other. Um, there's an example of a not faithful manager of money, and that's Judas. But this is an example of good management of money. And I think God does want money to be accounted for, not just in our spiritual lives, but in our houses, in our households, and in our family lives. Don't be... Don't be buying fancy gold dishes with your money. That's wasteful and prideful. And also don't be hoarding things and clinging to it like it's the world. Be, 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 have an open hand with money. You got it from God, you give it away as God has given you opportunities to do it. So 16 is an important point along this line. The money from the trespass offerings and the money from the sin offerings was not brought into the house of the Lord. It belonged to the priests. So remember, this is how priests made their money. Um, if you go back to Leviticus 5, this is how they fed their families. This is how they bought clothes. This is how they got a house. Is They relied on the sin offerings and the trespass offerings. These two offerings were offered up to the Lord, and the Lord said, use this to take care of my priests. So these were things that were obligatory things that would be taken in. The sin offerings and the trespass offerings, the equivalent for us is tithe, right? You get money that comes in and God expects you to take 10% of that and give it to the ministry or multiple ministries or spread it out. It's huge difference on this when we do this because there's an issue of the heart. They're making the point of verse 16 because if those priests were hoarding goodwill and freewill offerings, which they shouldn't have been doing, the point is they got all of this work done on the temple and the priests were still taken care of. These corrupt priests still were able to feed their families. So they didn't take anything away to do this. God simply prov provided for what was needed and they didn't have to wring hands and they didn't have to get all weird about it. Um, there's a huge difference for us, I think. Th this idea that when we look at a dollar and a billion dollars, most of us would say there's a big difference between me giving you a dollar and me giving you a billion dollars. But from God's perspective, there's virtually no difference. We're talking about a fr it can, the wealth that God has, that's a fraction for God. It's nothing. So it's interesting when God has to watch us quibble over money and argue about money and hoard this little bit here. If God wants to provide, he provides with as much as needed for the job. And I, I, this idea that the 16's added, I think, to make the point, not only did they get this all done, they got it all done by treating the workers well, verse 15, and the priests, the corrupt priests didn't lose a thing. But they willed to do what God wanted to be done, which is to take care of the building and to keep this temple, which is an image of God's love for his people. It makes Judah this center of God worship, Yahweh worship on the planet. Take care of that building. It's important for that era of history. Second Chronicles 24, 14. Usually I don't jump to Chronicles with these stories, but I want to add this point because we are focusing on all this. Second Chronicles 24, 14 adds one more point to this story, and this I think is great. 
they have more than enough money and there's more left over. And with the leftover money, they went back and bought all the plates and trumpets and flashy stuff. And I think that's kind of funny. Like in this point, I don't think the author is making that point. They're making the point that they willed to do something and they did it and they did it within the means and, and law that God had. They returned to the law of God because they got a testimony when he became king and he said, let's follow what the book says. And they did it and it all went well. Chronicles points out, not only did it go well, there was abundance left over afterwards. And we've been doing the story of the feeding of the thousands. God took what they had, not only used it, but there was more than enough left over when it was all done. There was abundance. So we see that. Then verse 17, Hazael, the king of Syria, went up, fought against Gath. That's where Goliath was from. That's the Philistine city. But it's the thing to note about Gath is it's on the Mediterranean coast, which means the Syrians have absolutely overrun northern Israel. They've completely moving with, with abandon in that area. Northern Israel has lost its sovereignty when we see things like Gath getting attacked. Um, and they took it. And then Hazael set his face to go to Jerusalem. Turned, he turned south. And jo Joash, the king of Judah, took all the sacred things that his fathers, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, and Ahaziah, the kings of Judah, had dedicated, and his own sacred things, the things that Chronicles said they were able to just get built. And all the gold found in the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the king's house. And he sent them to Hazael, the king of Syria, and then he went away from Jerusalem. What's interesting here is, we get nothing on if this is morally good or bad. Like, this is a great rabbi thing. What do you think? Was this morally okay? Was it not? He brought peace. There was no war. But he didn't have faith that God would save them either. He gave away things that weren't his. These belong to the Lord. That's probably bad. On the other hand, he didn't cling to his money and his gold stuff. That's probably good. So you could really take this passage and do some great, like, ethics class conversations around it. Um, later in his life, Syria is going to come back. So let's just take some lessons from this. Paying off bad people doesn't get rid of bad people. If you're being blackmailed, if anybody in the room is getting blackmailed right now, paying them off will not solve the problem. Never does because now you're a piggy bank for them. And they're just going to come back to you again and again and again. So if you're getting blackmailed, just deal with whatever the consequences of the blackmail. They probably got you on some sort of sin. Just own up to it and tell everybody before they can. Joash gets injured in this battle, Chronicles 24, 25. They start attacking Jerusalem. This is not good. We should note that at this period in history, Syria is also has a period of rest from Assyria. Same people group, but the Syrians are right next door to Israel and have been harassing them for a few generations. Just north of them, we need to note that there's a kingdom called Assyria. They are massing power and strength, and Assyria just is finishing up a battle, and they're not attacking the Syrians, which means the Syrians have some open door to go get loot, resources, and more soldiers so they can defend themselves against Assyria. The, the bad guy that, that northern Israel had to deal with is not the real bad guy coming up. They dealt with a little bad guy, like a baby bad guy. The big bad guy coming is Assyria, and they're growing, and they're growing strong at this point. So in, when we see this attack of Syria, it's like a raid of bandits. It's not a huge thing. In fact, the army's not that large. Verse 19, um, or I'm sorry, where did I get the size of the army? Maybe I got that for Chronicles too. This isn't a huge, massive force like what we're going to see in the time of Hezekiah. This is a couple thousand people raiding Jerusalem. Um, so... You got Joash not being strong and courageous. He's weak and fearful, and he gives away all the, the treasures of the temple. But the temple is fixed at the same time. So God raises up people. At this period in history, God starts raising up prophets in the southern kingdom. Not because Joash didn't have a good godly start, but because over the rest of his 40 years, he doesn't get rid of the high places. So prophets start showing up. In the northern kingdom, we've had a couple of prophets already show up. In the southern kingdom, now we get Isaiah, Joel, and Micah all start coming from this newly repaired temple, and they start walking into Joash the king saying, God has told me some things and has warned me about some things that you need to hear. So when you read Isaiah, when you read Joel, when you read Micah, this is the period of time when they start popping up in, in Judah. 
Now the rest of the acts of Joash, notice that they go back to this name Joash, and all that he did, are they not written in the book of Chronicles and the kings of Judah? Answer is yes, there's lots more there. And his servants arose and formed a conspiracy and killed Joash in the house of Milo, which goes down to Silla. So the, the Killa and Masilla, I'm sorry, that's that. For Josachar, the son of Shimeath, and Jehozabad, the son of Shomer, his servants struck him, so he died. And they buried him with his fathers in the city of David, and then Amaziah, his son, reigned in his place. Starts strong, falls away. We're looking for a king that's pure all the way to the end. So far, we've not seen that king. We've looked for a savior that will give us an example on how to live and and not earn our way into heaven, but be pure and ready for heaven. We've not seen that person show up, not even David. God lifts his blessing from the southern kingdom and they just start to get consumed. They start to lose control of territory. They start to give things away. They're paying homage to the Syrians. These verses of like his two servants just killed him. By the end of his reign, nobody loved this guy. This weakness is not something that's adored by his people. And it's the way in which they say then they took away all these resources for the treasuries of the house of the Lord. It's likely that that decision is part of what made the people rise up against him. It was his weakness and taking things that didn't belong to him that become a a source of uh, the people rising up against him. And again, the people put him on the throne and then the people take him off the throne. So this narrative of Syria might mean that The concession he gave is part of what caused this, but it doesn't say that directly. So who's next? Chapter 13. In the 23rd year of Joash, son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, became king over Israel and Samaria, back to the northern kingdom, reigned 17 years, did evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin. He did not depart from them. The purpose of kings is looking for the line of Messiah. So now they're just kind of moving through kings because God has left the northern kingdom. The son of Jehu, God promised Jehu four generations. If you want to keep track of that, this is generation number one. Verse three, then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel and he delivered them into the hand of Hazael, the king of Syria. We just saw that. And into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, all their days. So we're tracking kind of three nations and their kings. The downside of having God lift his hand from his country is that the anger of the Lord is he takes away his protection. And when he takes away his protection, nations are in constant turmoil. That's an indicator that God is taking his hand away from that nation. And this gets to be true, I think, throughout all of human history. The benefit of God's blessing is peace. The detriment of God pulling his hand away or his blessing away is turmoil all the time, trouble all the time, borders that you can't hold. Right? The Syrians just walking in whenever they want to. And so you have this idea that the, the nation can't sustain itself. So he gives them into the hand. So it, there's still a region, there's still a thing called Israel, northern, northern kingdom, but they're paying tribute to the Syrians, which means they've lost their sovereignty. They're in debt to other countries. Another indicator that God has lifted his blessing from a nation. So they can't pay for themselves. So Syria is using this tribute because they've come down here and do this, they use that tribute to pay for the war against Assyria to the north. But what happens when they don't have war with Assyria anymore? Then what, go, what are they going to do with all that? So Jehoahaz pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord listened to him, for he saw the oppression of Israel, because the king of Assyria oppressed them. And the Lord gave Israel a deliverer. They don't name the deliverer. I think that's great. You get godly people that don't even get named, but God knows who they are and they're noted, so that they escaped from under the hand of the Syrians, and the children of Israel dwelt in their tents as before. What happens, if you look at Assyrian records, they finish their war with the nation to the east of them, they turned their attentions back to Syria, Syria had to retract and defend themselves. So that's what happens in verse 5. Nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, who had made Israel sin, but walked in them. <clears throat> And the wooden image also remained in Samaria. Again, very little detail here. I think what's happening is that the sons of the prophet aren't keeping records anymore. So when they get to Babylon, they don't have as much detail as to what's going on in the northern kingdom anymore. 
So a lot of those sons of the prophet, remember Elisha told the widow to take off? It could be that the, that group of people, a lot of them are starting to move to the newly repaired temple and they're getting the heck out of the northern kingdom. For he left, he, and again, it doesn't say that. It's just, to me, that explains why we get a lot less detail about these situations. We get nameless deliverers that pop up. It's because they're hearing things secondhand. For he left the army, he, for he left of the army of Jehoahaz only 50 horsemen. That's not an army anymore. 50 horsemen, 10 chariots, and 10,000 foot soldiers. Oh yeah, it's a good force. <clears throat> for the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like dust at the threshing. They got police officers. They got a security force. But that's not clearly an army that you can do battle with. The pleading that we get in verse 4 is one of desperation. He saw the oppression of Israel because Syria oppressed them. God's responding because the people are being oppressed. So it's not, Lord, I'll follow you. It's, Lord, help me not experience the consequences of my sin. So this plea that he makes has very minimal effect. The word pleaded there is kalah. It means to come to someone in weakness and to beg from them. It's coming to God, begging God for help. <clears throat> so God gives them some release from Syria. They have to go back and fight their battle with the Assyrians. But it's this, it, it strongly implies that this is a fairly pathetic plea to God. It is not like serving him. And it even notes that they follow in the sins of Jer- Jeroboam, which means they continued to do their own version of Judaism. They didn't follow what the word of God said. So God lets them escape a situation, but he leaves the problem in place. All right, I'll give you a little breather, but the problem's not going away. With Hezekiah, the problem is literally killed overnight, and it's a much bigger problem than this one. The prophecy fulfills something that we saw. God said when he, when he gave them a king that if they did not follow him, he would incrementally remove himself from, from the nation. And he's absolutely doing that. So the use of the word pleaded there is interesting. It, one way in the Hebrew that that gets translated is sickness. If I'm like, if I call out like, honey, please get me some, get me an aspirin. That's the word kalah. It's pleading from a place of absolute desperation. And so Deuteronomy 29, 22 the coming generation of your children who rise up after you and the foreigner comes from a fi land would say that they see the plagues of that land. This is as God's removing his hand. They're going to see the plagues of the land and the kalah which the Lord has laid upon it, the pleading, the sickness that God's put there. So as we've seen this happening to the northern kingdom, God removing himself and giving them into the hand of enemies, giving them into the hand of these situations, that turmoil that's constant is a consequence of people abandoning their God. It says they'll dwell in their tents as before. God gives them this little bit bit of peace. And then in verse six, nevertheless, they did not depart. The trial remains there, even though they got a breather. Because I think what God does is he gives you a breather and sees if you'll continue to follow him, even though the, the problem isn't there anymore. And then there's a season where you get that. And so there's a difference between, Lord, help me, I'm in trouble, and Lord, I repent of my sins, and I want to follow you instead of what got me into trouble. So God gives you a breather from the trouble and sees if you're going to follow him or not. And that's what he's doing with the northern kingdom. Verse 7, for he left. (laughs) Um, The writer accredits God for this culling. (laughs) There is an idea that God is absolutely doing this. So there's a remnant of a military that's left behind. And then the point of the writer is the Northern kingdom is withering to almost nothing. And there's not much left of them. If you're a godly person, you've long ago left the Northern kingdom and you've gone South and you've headed to Judah and gotten the heck out of this place. Uh, The raiding of the Syrians would be a good clue that it's time to pick up and move. And so living in your tents, regardless of your big fancy mansions, might be preferable over being a target of the Syrians when they come back. Verse 8, now the rest of the acts of Jehoahaz, all that he did and and his might, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? Yep, we'll get more detail there. So Jehoahaz rested with his fathers and they buried him in Samaria. Then Joash, his son, reigned in his place. Not the same Joash as Judah, different Joash. They like each other. They're naming some of the similar names. Joash reigns in Israel, different Joash. 
the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoahash, the son of Jehoahaz, so they're differentiating the two, became king over Samaria and reigned 16 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, but he walked in them. So this is grandson of Jehu. This is generation number two. God promised four generations. So Jehu's had two kids. They're both disappointing. Verse 12. Now the rest of the acts of Joash and all he did and his might, which he fought against Amaziah, the king of Judah. So now they're having fights between the two nations. They were trying to, in the time of you know Jehu, they're trying to clean things up. Now the Israelites are fighting with each other. Another indication that God's further removing himself from Israel is that the people start battling it out with each other. I think when God lifts his hands off a church, one of the things you start to see is people in the church start fighting one another. They lose the unity of spirit because we didn't make that unity. God made it. And you start discovering those differences between you and other people in the church. They're so big that they're a problem. And that's partially God's removing his hand from that, that ministry. So Joash rested with his fathers. Then Jeroboam sat on the throne. That's it. We've seen all these things. They followed in the sins of Jeroboam, but they're naming people after this guy. And Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. So there's another king, just king, king, king. And they keep not doing what they needed to do. Uh, generationally, they're probably saying to themselves, well, I'm pretty good. I'm better than my dad. Right? So they're, they're comparing themselves to their own generation, not to the word of God. This is dangerous because as culture gets acculturated to a certain behavior, then it becomes justified by the people that hold that. Well, my culture doesn't see this as bad or evil, so what's the big deal? Having those high places, those party centers, I don't go to the party centers, so why are they a problem? And so they have this kind of environment where they're not a nation of people seeking the Lord first, they're a nation of people that continue in the sins of Jeroboam, which is to do worship their own way. So we have that, we get an offhanded mention of a civil war in verse 12, both nations are now compromised. They start battling with each other. We get no detail in the book of Kings because that's not the point of the book of Kings. Book of Kings is how did the line of Judah make it through all that? And do we still have hope of Messiah? And so we'll pick up there. We'll stop at verse 13 tonight. We'll pick up there when we get back next week. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I, I love how reading about these kings tells me something about my life and that your word can speak to us. Lord, we had a lot of thick topics tonight, and just may we be blessed by talking about them, thinking through them. Lord, I know that amongst your saints, you gave us brains to discern and unpack and talk about and bring more of your word to bear on what we talked about tonight. And Lord, I pray for those conversations to just be things that are a blessing. May we leave here tonight being assured of your presence, your love, that you've revealed yourself and that you've made a promise to us that you don't break. And I thank you, Lord, at generations of kings breaking their promise to you. Lord, may we end that today. Lord, I pray that each person in this room seeks with their heart, mind, and soul to keep their covenant to you. And take that seriously, Lord, as you take it seriously. Lord, may you never lift your hand from our hearts. May you always bless us and protect us and keep the enemy away. And Lord, I pray for a, a, just a covering of your Holy Spirit that we... We want to serve you, and you've promised to protect and guard over our lives. May you renew our spirits each day and create in us a clean heart. In Jesus' name. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.